Good morning, church. We add our greetings and blessings to you this morning from those you've already heard. My name is Patrick Reeves, and this is my wife, Nancy, and we will offer you the scripture reading this morning. Good morning. As we continue worship this morning, we study the amazing love of God revealed through Luke 15. God's love is ridiculous, welcoming both rebellious sinners home and self-righteous sinners in to celebrate through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God wants you to know the, his love and then celebrate with him in all of heaven. When the lost are found and the dead are brought to life, hear the word of God. Please follow along with me, either in your bulletin or in your own Bibles. We will be reading Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And now the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Thank you, Reeves family. Good morning, everybody. Well, that was pretty good. Good job. I want to commend the 11 o'clock service uh, after the mission moment in the first service. People wanted to clap, but they just didn't. They were like, can we do that as Presbyterians? But not the 11 o'clock. You all were all in. I was just affirm you in that. It's great to hear from the Bartons and uh, Jenny in particular in this, uh, you know, to have their accent around all week, that's just been a blessing, right? I mean, who expects an Australian accent with people who work in Uganda? Don't talk to my kids, but I have this horrible tendency to adapt accents at home. And so there have been times when I've walked home this week and be like, good day, everybody. And they're like, no. But I did ask him, what is y'all's goal this week for how many children you want sponsored? And they said, 100 children sponsored this morning. And I did say, crikey. Just kidding. No, I didn't. That, that was a reference to Crocodile Dundee. Okay, let's get to the passage. So we're going to look at uh, one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture, Luke chapter 15. It's most known for the story of the prodigal son, but just to give us a little context uh, for where we are going through the gospel of Luke, we've been looking at the amazing love of God. Uh, that is seen in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And up until last week, we had seen some pretty intense conflict between the religious leaders from Jerusalem and Jesus. And last week, we saw a transition. We're spending a couple of weeks looking at Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And last week, we saw the contours of the kingdom and how they run counterculturally uh, for us as Texans, in an enlightened, Western, privileged world. Here's what I mean. As Texans, we like everything what? 
bigger, because everything's bigger in Texas, right? Well, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God starts tiny. It starts small, like a grain of mustard seed or, or some yeast in a flower. As Western, enlightened, and educated people, we like to keep our minds open, and we understand that there's many ways to think through or solve an equation. But Jesus teaches that there's only one way to enter the kingdom through the narrow door, which is a relationship with him, Jesus Christ, the living God. And through that relationship, that small door opens up to this vast world of experience of new creation personally and a whole new redeemed and restored world uh, that Christ ushers in already through his work, but not yet fully consummated. And finally, uh, the last thing we saw as privileged Americans, I say this gently, but we are a privileged congregation. There's just mm, not many congregations who can actually have capacity to prayerfully consider sponsoring a child for $35 a month, right? That, That puts us in a category of privilege. In fact, those children without sponsorship, can't go to school. They will not have access to health care. They won't get square meals a day. Like, let's just be honest, we're privileged. And so when Jesus teaches about the contour of the kingdom, that it's, it's for the least, the lost, the marginalized, the overlooked, those that are far off, these contours of the kingdom that we looked at last week, they actually run counterculturally for us. And today, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching on the core of the kingdom. And we're going to have good news for the religious, a little bit of an explanation. Good news for the sinners. You get some encouragement to engage the love of our Father. And you're going to get an experience for the skeptic as we look at this passage. Now, Luke 15 is known for what many call a tale of two brothers. We're familiar with the prodigal son, but I want to tell you the story of two other brothers before we unpack that parable in our passage today. The first is we had a guy here, actually the first service, from Boston. This is where this story, this real story takes place. You can Google it or Wikipedia it as we go through. I promise it's true. You'll find it there. Um, But this two brothers, one's name was James Whitey. His name's spelled Bulger, but I was told that it's Burgess. I don't know. Massachusetts people, who knows? William, Billy, Bulger, or Burgess, those were the two brothers. The, the second one, Billy, was four years older. They came from the same family, but they lived two different lives. Uh, the first, Whitey Burgess, um, he was the head of one of Boston, Massachusetts' most feared mafia groups, this gang called the Winter Hill Gang. And he was at one time one of the most wanted people in America. And when they finally captured him, they found that his influence extended even into the FBI. He was convicted, he was put in prison, and in prison he was murdered, a revenge killing. His brother, on the other hand, Billy Burgess, four years younger than Whitey, He was actually the head of the Massachusetts State House. 
It was just a few miles away, located on Beacon Hill, and he was a dominant force for more than four decades. He became, even later, the president of the Massachusetts Senate, and at the end of his career, he had this cherry-on-top vocation where he became the head of all the University of Massachusetts in all the whole state. I mean, it's the whole system. Pretty nice gig. So our temptation is to say, wow, you know, Whitey, he was a bad guy. I mean, if everybody could just be like Billy, it'd be a lot better, right? We have this tendency to look in categories of bad and good. He's a good guy. He's a bad guy. But we're going to see that's not a biblical category. And all we have to do is lean in a little bit. If you look at Billy's life, and you can study, it's pretty easy. They got documentaries on these guys, okay? He actually used his brother Whitey's influence to not only establish political power, but to maintain political power. He used his brother's gang influence, mafia influence, especially in the pork industry. And when his brother was captured and went to trial, Billy didn't even go testify. You know why? He didn't want to be indicted himself. He actually lived next to one of Whitey's top partners. And in this house, his neighbor, they found that there had been murders, there had been trafficking, there had been laundering and everything else mafias and gangs do. But Billy wouldn't open his mouth. And he went on to have a good career. You see, all you got to do is look in just a little bit and realize that our categories of good guy, bad guy, those aren't really biblical. That's why the story of the prodigal son is is so important to us. We call it the prodigal son. It's really more of the prodigal father. But I want to show you this picture that Rembrandt painted. I had several options. I love art. I love looking at art. And one of my favorite is uh, church historical religious art. And this painting by Rembrandt is by far one of my favorites. And if you look at it closely, you see a few things. The, The father is leaning over in the light. The son has come home to the father. And you can see the son's shoes are different. The father's hands are different. And there's all kinds of powerful messages conveyed in the way that Rembrandt painted this painting. Now, if you look really closely, and I don't know if you can see it in the back, but there's a shadowy figure. And that shadowy figure is the older brother. And we're tempted to, to hear the prodigal son's story. And we're tempted to say, hey, look, you know, the prodigal who ran away, he was a rebel. He was a bad guy. And then the guy who's the older brother who stayed home, he was a good guy. But that's not it. Both of them misunderstood the amazing love of the father. The older brother was self-righteous. He stayed on the outside of the house. And you can see at the end of Luke 15, the father pleads with him, come inside. Your brother was lost. Now he's found. Your brother was dead. Now he was alive. But the self-righteous older brother took his own work more serious than the invitation of a loving father. He too was lost just in his good works. And so what the Bible helps us see is that it isn't a good guy, bad guy category, that we're all sinners in need of grace. That the good and the bad are mingled here in my heart. And so we all need to take up the invitation of our Father, either to come in and celebrate or to come home 
and connect in personal relationship. So before we open the word of the Lord, will you join me in going to the Lord of the word in prayer? Will you do that? Let me ask it another way. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are your people. This is your word. Would you remove the distractions? And I ask that you would sit on us, that we would feel the weight of your presence and the power of your love through the work of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So if you look in your Bibles, uh, it's in your bulletin. If you need a pew Bible, uh, they're located on racks behind you. Feel free to use your phone if you want. The point of this time is that we worship God by studying the word of God. We're not going to spend the next 15, 20 minutes looking at this because we have nothing better to do. We're doing it because we want to encounter a living God in the unbelievable, undescribable, uncontainable love that he has for all of us. And you see right off the first point we're going to look at is, is it's an explanation for the religious. The kingdom of God, it's about God's love, not your performance. First, let's look at the first two verses. The context of who Jesus is telling these parables to, uh, one group is the tax collectors and sinners. You see this? They were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus, verse 2. It was the Pharisees and the scribes. Here's those religious leaders again. They're grumbling and they're saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. You can see clearly that these two groups of people, the sinners and the tax collectors on the one hand and the Pharisees and the religious leaders on the other, they actually fit the bill pretty perfectly of the older brother who doesn't know the father's love and is equally as lost in his self-righteousness and the rebellious son who needs to come home. And so Jesus is, is teaching them about the core of the kingdom and he does it through a series of three parables. The first is about a lost sheep. Look down at the passage in verse three. Jesus tells them this parable, which man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99, go into the open country to go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. You see, uh, the self-righteous who are grumbling, they're not going to see themselves as lost sheep. They're the good sheep that stay home. But the Bible teaches us in Isaiah chapter 53 that we are all like sheep who have gone astray. The psalmist and the apostle Paul, they put it a different way, that no one is righteous. No one seeks God. All of us stray. We've all missed the mark. We've all trespassed. We're all like sheep. Now, how do sheep get lost. Do you know how sheep get lost? It's not like one day a sheep is, looks at the shepherd. He's like, Hey man, you've been good, but I'm going to go to greener pastures. I'm going to find a better shepherd. That's not what sheep do. Our hearts are prone to wander. And like sheep, we see something good and we're like, Oh, that's a good clump of grass. I'm going to eat that. Oh, look at this one over here. This is a good, wow. Look at this grass. And you just kind of nibble your way here and there. And Oh man, look at this grass over here. You're never really looking up. But then all of a sudden you're nibbling and you see green grass and you're going until you're totally out of the picture. And then a shepherd 
calls the sheep's voice. Yep. And oh, the shepherd comes out and he puts the sheep on his shoulder and he carries the sheep back to the pen, to the green grass. Now, what the shepherd doesn't do is he doesn't go after this lost sheep and, and say, oh, look, now I found you. You know, you know that out here there's wolves and they're probably hiding right over there in the forest. I have the right mind just to let them come devour you and to teach you a lesson. I'm just going to walk back with your bloody carcass so all the other sheep know not to do this. That's, the shepherd doesn't rule in fear. He doesn't also rule in manipulation. He doesn't say, hey, look, I'm going to wait till you clean yourself up, you stinky little sheep. You've got stuff all over you. And when you finally put yourself together, then maybe you can come back into the plasture of my pleasure. No. You see, it's really important that the love of the father is the shepherd that goes out after the stray sheep, that gathers the stray sheep, that carries the stray sheep, because there is no set of righteous rules that can get us from outside in our wandering lost state inside. Only the love of God that is manifest through the work of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. All of us have nibbled our way into lostness. And only the shepherd slings us onto his shoulder. And, you know, maybe by way of diagnosis, we can get to the third point, which will be where we land eventually, is that the steadfast love of the shepherd invites people to celebrate. Look how this parable ends. And when he comes, the shepherd, verse 6, he calls together his friends, his neighbors. He says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. That was lost. And Jesus says, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, sinners who know, self-righteous people who know that you have to have a savior, they're marked with joy. True story. The Bible teaches that one of the fruits of the spirit is joy. That's in Galatians 5. Another true story. This week, a teenager in our church asked me if our church members were joyful. Wouldn't it have been nice if he could have just looked around and discovered that for himself? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you have been accused of being overly joyful lately, have you? But joy, it's the thunder of heaven when a sinner comes home and repents and is restored. All of us know we need a savior. All of us long for the hurting to come home. And when the heavenly father finds the lost, oh, there is joy and satisfaction. I can't diagnose your heart. I can't, but you can. Are you abounding in joy? Have we been captured by the core of the kingdom, the Father's love? He looks at you and he not only loves you, but he also likes you. He enjoys being with you. He's fond of you. He's eager to hang out with you. That's the love of our Father. He goes after us. And friends, when we know that love, there is great joy. But when we take our work more serious 
than the work of our shepherd, then we stand on the side in skepticism and wonder, who is this Jesus, really? No one is righteous. All of us need a savior in the self-righteous religious people need to repent of your good works. The things that you do that you think obligate or manipulate God, and we need to take up our Father's invitation to come inside the house and learn how to party. The second parable is not just an explanation for the religious to come in the party, but it's an encouragement for sinners to come home. And this is the heart of who Jesus is talking to, the tax collectors, the sinners, the, uh, the, the unclean, the dirty in society. Uh, all of us, as I've noted, are sinners and self uh, uh, sinners who need forgiveness, even the self-righteous. Uh, we do not, we're unable to clean ourselves and to come home. Uh, we must have a God that comes after us, that pursues us, because uh, we can't know all the right answers and we can't perform uh, good enough to equal the scales. We just miss the mark every time. But the second parable teaches us of the value that we have in the Father's eyes. As, as Jesus is appealing to the men and to the women, to the religious and the irreligious, the self-righteous and the sinners, he does so through just natural appealing. How many of you men, if you had sheep, would go after and look for the lost? Yes, yes, I would. How much more God? And how many of you women, if you had coins and you lost a coin, how will you sweep the house, get a light and look for it? Yes, yes, I would. How much more your heavenly father would do this? The point is that you're more valuable than a coin. You're valuable to the father. You are significant to the creator of the universe. He sends a light, as this woman does, looking diligently for her coin. The light is Jesus to a people that walk in darkness. And when the coin is found, the community is, just celebrates. And again, we're going to hit that joyous, thunderous, heavenly celebration in a minute. But i got to ask you a question. Do you believe that God the Father is pursuing you like this woman did the coin? Like the shepherd did the sheep? Do you believe it? The answer is, it's true. Whether you believe it or not. I don't know if you know the name Francis Thompson. Uh, he was a poet, um, but he was a brilliant man that came from a pretty privileged background. And he had deep longings in his heart. And he couldn't find satisfaction with these longings. He ended up looking for satisfaction in different places. They were empty and caused more ruin than they did restoration. And he found himself in the late 1700s, early 1800s, homeless and addicted to opium. Like the drug addicts, the homeless that are on our streets that you drove by or walked by to get here, that's who Francis Thompson was. And he's very well known now as a poet because he eventually found the longings and the, the, the cravings of his soul and the covenant love of Jesus Christ. And he's most known for a certain poem. If I, if I quoted the poem to you, you probably wouldn't recognize it, but all of you will recognize the title. 
And the title of the poem he wrote of God the Father's relentless pursuit of him is called The Hound Dog of Heaven. This picture of of a father that is on the scent of sinners, that he is relentlessly pursuing people so that they will know his love. Do you know this pursuit? I'm going to argue that you do. And like Francis Thompson, you can see God's pursuit of you through the longings of your soul. Think about how the prodigal son ended up coming home to the love of the father. After he had squandered everything and he was, he was living with pigs, he longed to fill his belly with what the pigs were eating. It says that he came to his senses. You see, the doorway to understanding the divine pursuit of your soul is by looking at your longings, the, the hunger and the hope of your heart, the, the loneliness that you feel, the love that you're looking for, those will only be satisfied when you allow them to lead you to our Lord Jesus Christ. The loss that you feel where you're just begging God to fill you up or looking anywhere to have you, that's, that's only can be satisfied by God himself. The thirst that you feel, the, the lack of satisfaction that you feel from how you're medicating and coping through life, those are doorways that we hear the knocking of our heavenly father who is pursuing you. As Francis Thompson was pursued through his pain and his problems until he finally came to his senses, so us too have to note that the hungers and the hopes that we have in our heart are heavenly invitations because only the Lord Jesus can satisfy, forgive, fill, secure, strengthen, embrace, love, like we long for. So we have this explicit explanation to the righteous, self-righteous. We've got this encouragement for sinners. And and finally, I want to give you an experience for the skeptics, because We live in a world, and if this isn't you, I promise it it is someone in your family. Someone in your family, if not you, is skeptical that this whole thing is true. We live in a world where people prefer their life flat. Can we just remove the transcendence? I don't want any explanation or experience of like some God that loves me. But here, Jesus is telling us that when a sinner comes home, that actually angels in heaven celebrate. And he's asking you to believe that there is a heaven, that there is an eternity. Now look, when you're a preacher, uh, you're kind of like a pilot that's waiting for the air traffic control tower to tell you how to land. I had several different landing options in my brain this week. How are we going to invite our skeptics to know that there is a transcendent. And I was at a concert Friday night with my wife. It was crazy. Just kidding. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was in a church. Don't panic. All right. And this guy said something from up front and I just looked at Lisa and I said, I've got to tell the story of my sister again. And she said, again? Said, yeah. My sister, 
who I think about every Good Friday. She died on a Good Friday. She was 33 years old. Maybe you've gotten a call like this before. We were getting ready for the Good Friday service. We lived in St. Louis, Missouri. And I didn't know that my sister's lungs were filling with blood. She'd had a blood vessel break. My mom, she was with my mom. They drove to the hospital. And the doctors just said, there's nothing we can do. We can't pump the lungs. There's just, you can sit, they just, you can sit with your daughter as long as you need. This is your room. And so my sister called my brother and then called me just to say goodbye. It's a hard phone call. Uh, every Good Friday, March 21st, that year. And so my mom hangs up, the, or my sister hangs up the phone. My mom tells the story this way. She was the only one in the hospital room with her. She said that my sister, Katie, uh, her, her breath became more and more laborious. They couldn't pump anything out, drowning. She's going, it's difficult. And my, my mom says that as it became more difficult, my sister lifted her head up and started looking around. And with a clear voice, she said to my mom, mom, do you see them? And my mom looked around and said, see what, see what? And she said, the angels they're beautiful and they're here to take me in, in tremendous peace. My sister laid her head down. That was it. And my mom was in this moment of losing her daughter, but longing to see the angels that had ushered her into eternity. I tell that story. I'll tell it again because we live in a world where we need to know that there is an eternity, that there are angels, that there is a heaven. And the odds are, the more I tell that story, the more I have people tell me, have that same thing happened to this person in my life. That happened to this person in my life. And we hear all of these amazing testimonies of celestial beings that break into the present moment because it's true, skeptic. There is a heaven. There are angels. And there is rejoicing over lost sheep that are found, over sinners that are coming home. And the self-righteous, the invitation from your father is get over yourself. Stop taking yourself so serious. And come on inside and learn how to party. Will you? Let's celebrate. The dead are being made alive. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. He's a resurrection God. The invitation for us that are, that are lost in our sin, that are struggling in our, in our addictions, in our loss, our loneliness, our sin struggles, the way we're coping, is to come home, come to your senses. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. I know this hound dog of heaven and he'll either do this the easy way or the hard way. He will pursue you until you come home and respond to his irresistible grace or until you hit the bottom and break yourself and everything you love. He will grab your heart because that's the core of the kingdom, friends. It's not about your performance. It's not about you having the right answers. 
It's about a living relationship with a living God, a hound dog of heaven, a father who not only loves you, but he likes you. And he wants intimate relationship with you. And he wants to fill us with joy, even in our sorrows. Man, this is for us, friends. This is the invitation from our Father to you. If you don't know him personally and you're not his child, then the invitation is put your faith in Christ. If you do know him and you are his child, let's, let's be accused of being overly joyful. Can we do that? Join me in this ridiculous celebration of radical love. Let's pray. Lord God, we believe Would you help us with our unbelief? Give us new hearts that hope in heaven and give us life abundant. Fill us with the fruit of your joy. Thank you for relentlessly pursuing us. Get glory in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.